You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Galatians 3 verse 10, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather. The one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now let's ask the Lord to help us this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we read these phrases, these sentences, these things, that you have inspired the pen of the Apostle Paul to record for us, we look to you, O Lord, and we pray that, Father, you would work in our minds and our hearts to come to understand these things, Father. Keep and guard us from error as we seek, O Father, to see the gospel that has been preserved for us, that we get it right, that we get it correctly, that we apply it to our lives, that we walk in it, that we enjoy it, that we live by it. Father, we ask that you would be pleased to bless us to these ends for your glory In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Now, we spent a lot of time reviewing last week, so I'll do less of that this week. Um, I guess just to say that when we get to chapter 3, here we find ourselves really in Paul's argument. This is where Paul really begins to advance his argument. He's been arguing that there's only one gospel, that any distortion of that one gospel is another gospel, and to embrace a distortion of the gospel or to embrace any other gospel is to turn your back on on Christ. And uh, we've looked at that in verse 5 of chapter 2. We see Paul there laboring to uh, preserve the gospel uh, for us, if you will, and uh, Paul is making the claim that a person is justified by faith only. Uh, No plus sign, no additions. How are we justified? How can we stand in God's court? How can fallen sinners like ourselves stand in God's court, have um, fellowship with Him, um, have uh, communion with Him? It's through faith in Christ. No additions, no plus signs. Now, in chapter 3, Paul begins to put forth a very careful argument. He puts forth his argument here, beginning by arguing from experience in verses 2 through 5. And then in verse 6, he begins to argue from the Scriptures, starting with Genesis 15 and verse 6, where he says, Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. There we see there's always been one people of God. All of the people of God have always been called the same way. How are they called? By faith in Christ. There's one faith, there's one gospel, there's one baptism, there's one Lord, there's one church, there's one people of God comprised of Jew and Gentile. And it's always been this way since Genesis 3.15, where we have the very first gospel proclamation in the Garden in Eden at the heels of the first rebellion against God, the initial rebellion against God, what we call the fall. 
And here, what is Paul doing? He's going back to Abraham to show that how is a person declared righteous in God's sight? It is through faith. Abraham believed the promises that were put forth to Abraham. He embraced them. He acted on them and by believing. And last week, we spent a lot of time talking about how faith is the highest uh, worship of God, didn't we? Faith is the highest worship. Okay, God looks at that. When we, when we hear his promise, we embrace his promise, he looks at that and says, I'll take that. I'll not only take that, I'll actually bring you into union with my son and I'll give you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And there we experience all of those blessings. You know, taken out of the jail cell of sin, taken out of the dominion of Satan, given the Holy Spirit. We're going to see that in verse 4. We probably won't get quite to that this morning, but we'll have opportunity to see that, Lord willing, plenty. But how does this happen? This happens through faith. Now, in verse 8, we have another uh, passage of Scripture that Paul quotes, and this is from Genesis 12, 3, and there are a few other times where this thing is uh, said again. But if you look at verse 8 there, Paul says, The Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel. Now, you see, when you go back to Genesis 12, a lot of us might not think of Genesis 12 as the gospel, but what are we told here? Genesis 12 is the gospel. And it, it, my favorite promise of all the promises that God gives to Abraham is that in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And that's what's being alluded to here. That's what's being quoted here. Because um, Jesus will descend from Abraham. That's the point of the genealogy that we come to when we turn to the pages of the New Testament is Jesus is a son of Abraham and he is the one. And we're going to look at this when we get to verses 15 and forward. We're going to get to look at the sacred offspring, if you will, of Abraham. We're going to get an opportunity to study that. But it is in Christ that all of us are blessed, isn't it? It's in Christ that every family of this world will be blessed. Every family of this world will be blessed, which is a tremendous promise. And this brings us to verse 10, which we started to look at last week as we were comparing and contrasting the blessing with the curse. And when we look at verse 10, there we're told, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, I think before we go on, I think it'd probably be wise to do a little bit of housekeeping on this verse and verses like it. You know, some of you are, are building libraries at home, and occasionally you'll ask me about commentaries. And as you do that, as you buy these commentaries, and as you build these libraries at home, you start looking at the commentaries on uh, passages such as this. You'll find that there are some scholars that will, um, will look at these verses, and they'll come to the conclusion that the Apostle Paul is uh, either drawing from memory and doesn't get the verse quite right, or that he's twisting the Old Testament scriptures. How many have heard this kind of stuff? How many have come across this kind of stuff? I know some, yeah, there's almost a field of study now that involves the New Testament's use of the Old Testament. How many have encountered that? If you've got a study, some study Bibles will oftentimes have some, some pages devoted to that uh, in the back or maybe an article or maybe an extended note in particular places. Uh, that talk about the New Testament's use of the Old Testament. And there are some scholars, they'll, they'll say, you know, when Paul quotes, for example, in verse 10, 
you know, he says, for it is written. Okay, what's he referring to? It's written in the old, what we would call the Old Testament. It's written in the Hebrew Scriptures. Then he goes on to say, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, obviously his base in saying this, his base verse is Deuteronomy 27 and verse 26, which we all memorized, right? Everyone has that memory. You have it memorized, and therefore you see that Paul doesn't quote it exactly word for word, does he? And that's where it leads some scholars to wait. Why doesn't he get it word for word? Well, some will say, well, it's because he's drawing from memory and he doesn't quite get it. Or others will say, well, what he's doing really is just twisting the Old Testament to make it say whatever he wants it to say. Now, wait a second. Can we, can we, can we go there? Let's keep in mind, let's, you know, when you get confused like this, go back to the basics. What do we call the Bible? We don't call the Bible a collection of various authors. We call the Bible the Word of God, don't we? Why do we call it the Word of God? Because behind the human authors is one author who is superintending the writing of each book in the Bible, correct? So are we to say that the Holy Spirit is enabling Paul to botch up these uh, quotations from the uh, Old Testament? We that's ridiculous. That's, un that's unorthodox. Um, that's not something that we, can, that we can accept. Well then, okay, how do we, what do we do with these verses? And there are many of them in the New Testament where Paul isn't quoting it exactly right. The best explanation that I've heard is that what Paul's doing is going back and grabbing the thrust of the passage. In fact, if you go back to, we don't need to do that. I don't think we have time to go into all these verses. We will never, um, we'll never make it to verse 14. Not that that's what's most important, but I don't think it'd be profitable for us to do that. But at your leisure, if you want, you go back to uh, Deuteronomy 27. You'll see that verse 26 is the very last verse, if you will, in that chapter. And it seems to be somewhat of a summary. And I think what Paul's doing here, I think, is he's basically grabbing, if you will, the thrust of what Deuteronomy 27 and 28 teach. Now, what does Deuteronomy 27 and 28 teach? Well, the historical context of those chapters is Israel's about to go into the promised land. Deuteronomy actually means a repetition of the law. You can hear the word namos and deuteronomy. If you will, Deutero, repetition, law, repetition of the law, or twice the law. Uh, what Moses is doing is giving Israel the law, refreshing their memory. They've been wandering around in the desert for 40 years. They're getting ready to go into the uh, promised land. And there are promises of blessing to Israel that are given if they keep the covenant. And there are promises of curse if they breach the covenant. And that's what those two chapters there, 27 and 28, are devoted to. And that's what Paul is really encapsulating, if he will, uh, with this, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. Now, there's a lot of reasons to, to conclude that Paul knew these verses really, really well. Now, some of us might say, well, yeah, well, it's, it's tradition holds that he memorized the entire Old Testament. So, yeah, he knew it really well. Or we could say at the feet of Gamaliel, who Paul studied under, he, part of his Jewish training, he got these verses really well. But there's another reason, and I think um, maybe we're not quite as aware of, but there was a tradition of carrying out the 40 lashes 
minus 1. And 2 Corinthians 11 teaches us that the Apostle Paul endured that five times. Do you, do you follow? That's a whipping where he stands on the, at the business end of a whip and he receives 39 lashes, if you will, by a whip five times. Who would care to undergo that once? He did it five times. Now, if it was carried out according to some of the common traditions, then there was a reader involved. It would go something like this. The person, probably a, a guard or a military uh, person with the whip, would proceed with a few lashes, and then somebody would read from Deuteronomy 27 or 28, read the curses. A few more lashes, then read the curses. A few more lashes, then read the curses. How about that for a discipleship program? It's pretty rough. And while we're on this subject, um, it's pretty legalistic, isn't it? I mean, is that how you can... Oh, goodness. And when we're thinking about curses here, I think we ought to just make some application here on the side. You know, some people, depending on your upbringing, depending on the context in which you were raised, depending on the context which you found yourself in, a lot of people, when they hear about curses and they, they hear about these things, it could bring their minds back to a really legalistic uh, part of their lives. And... Because of this, a, a lot of folks have in their minds this idea of God who's like a divine ogre with a yardstick and a scowl on his face just waiting for you to slip up so he can crack that yardstick over your fingers. And that's why when we're talking to people, it's really important to ask questions. Believe me, I've made the mistake of thinking I knew what people needed to hear and just rem, just blah, 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 blah. Those conversations very rarely go real well. Fact is, we don't know. It's, it's best to ask questions. You know, as I've shared with you, you know, you, you're, you're at the coffee pot and someone begins to talk about God, or you can initiate it by asking, just simply asking. This, this really is a relatively safe question to ask people. Uh, you know, tell me, you know, we've never talked about it, but do you believe in God? Now, if you're talking to a person who's come from a background, a legalistic background, or for whatever might be in their past, where they perceive God as some kind of divine ogre with a yardstick, that's going to come forth as you begin to ask these questions. And when it comes forth, if it comes forth, what does that person really need to hear? That person really needs to hear about God's love. Now, one thing I like to share, and I, I will tell you, and you've heard me say it many, many, in fact, most of you have heard this so many times, you probably could pre-produce it without even thinking about it much. But why, why the curse? Why is the curse necessary? The curse is necessary because God is perfectly loving. Because God is perfectly loving, He's perfectly just. You've heard me say this many, many times, right? Let's think about it. You know, um, in, in every age, there are folks who do creepy stuff. And it looks like they're going to get away with their creepy stuff. And what do we say about that? We want justice, don't we? We want justice. And sometimes we get really infuriated when we see people. And we're going to get this when we go to Habakkuk. We're going to get this. That's what Habakkuk's wrestling with. He's looking around at people doing wicked things to the righteous, 
and they seem to be getting away with it. In fact, more so than getting away with it, they seem to be prospering by it. And what do we want in those moments? When we see that stuff happening, what do we want? We want justice. Why do we want justice? We're wired for that because we know that it's right. So thank goodness that God is just in this respect. Listen, there is nobody who's going to get away with anything. And in fact, I, you know, I don't know. It's been some time ago, maybe six months ago. I spent a lot of time developing this very part. When you see somebody continually getting away with stuff, continually getting away with stuff, continually getting away with stuff. A lot of times we think, look at them. They get away with everything. Be rest assured, they're already being judged by God. Someone say, what? Look at how the nature changes as they get away with things over and over and over again. What happens to them? They become increasingly arrogant, don't they? I'm untouchable. And what are they doing? They're, con they're just continuing to heap up more judgment upon themselves. You know, it's part of what we learn in Romans 1 where God just stands back. You know, there's a line that we can cross where God will just stand back and say, all right, I'm just going to let you go. I'm just going to leave you to yourself. And what happens then? Well, if we're left to ourselves, we're doomed. Every one of us are doomed if we're left to ourselves. And I think we, we've got to train ourselves to begin to look and see things like this. The, the judgment's already begun because unless this person or unless this individual repents, that's why I pray for repentance to come upon leaders and people who are in positions of power and influence, people who are in positions where they can carry out a lot of these kinds of things. We want repentance to come to them. But if repentance doesn't come to them, they're not going to get away with anything because God is just and God couldn't be perfectly loving. Unless he's just. All these violations that people commit against others, God's gonna, he's gonna meet that out. So it's really helpful to share with someone, listen, this it, God's not a divine ogre in the in the sky who's holding a yardstick, ready to crack the fingers of crack our fingers as soon as we slip up. No, as we're gonna see in verse 13, I want to be sure we get to verse 13. We're gonna see God's love displayed at the cross. And we're going to see the real character of God. So Paul, what is he saying here in verse 10? All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. This is just a spiritual law. Because we're all fallen. It's just a spiritual law that we have here. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things, written in the book of the law. Now there's a principle here that we need to get our minds around. Is if we are going to rely on works of the law to get favor with God, then we have to keep it all. In thought, word, and deed. <laughs> that needs no commentary, does it? Like Luther used to say, where's the one? Who is he? Who's the one who has kept God's law perfectly in thought, word, and deed? Show him to us so we can praise him. Actually, there's only one who's done that. It's Christ Jesus. And the good news of the gospel is he has done that so we'd have a righteousness to give away, Right? And it's that very righteousness that we get the moment we put our faith in him, and that's how we can be justified, right? So the first principle we have here, if you're going to rely on works of the law, you must keep every law, every single one, in thought, word, and deed. Not just walking to the letter of the law, but also walking in accordance to the spirit of the law. 
The second principle I want to show here is it's one, sometimes people really struggle, and I think the word rely in verse 10 is really helpful. Um, some earlier translations would use the word continuous, and that was a little bit confusing, I think, for all. It's not that it's wrong translation, but it's, I think, a little bit conf- confusing because it would say, okay, for all who continue with works of the law are under a curse. And then you'd be like, wait a second, what are you saying? So, so after we put our faith and our trust in Christ, then we can go on lawlessly? Is that what you're saying? And actually, that's a question that should come up once in a while at the, at the water cooler if we're sharing the gospel. I just had a person ask that question at the park last Monday. As I was sharing the gospel with them, one person said, wait a second, okay, if we put our faith and trust in Christ, after that, what's it, does it mean a person can just say, I have faith in Jesus, I can live any way I want? And I answered them by, um, by recalling my presbytery sermon. Believe me, you don't forget your Presbyterian sermon. <laughs> Some of you have heard those. Some of you have been had the opportunity to go to Presbytery, and you've seen those poor characters stand up there in intrepidation. It is one scary place to preach, let me tell you. When you're not so much after, not so much afterwards, but um, but when you got everybody watching you, it's 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 frightening. And I remember. I mean, I I can't tell you what I preached three months ago, but I can tell you what I preached. <laughs> all those years ago uh, for my presbytery sermon. It was from Romans 6, and the title, the title and the thrust of my sermon was Be All That God Has Made You To Be. And one of the applications I made of that sermon was, if no one is saying once in a while that if no one is throwing this objection at you once in a while, that if what you're saying is true, then we can just go on and live any way we want put our faith in Jesus and just live lawlessly. If no one is saying that to us once in a while, we might not be sharing the gospel. That was one of the points that I made in that sermon. And that's what Paul counters in Romans 6. If you're familiar with it, he begins by saying, what shall we say then? Shall uh, shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? Then he uses a really strong negative, uh, meganoito in the Greek. He says, by no means, or some might translate it, God forbid. How can we who died to sin still go on living in it? Once in a while, somebody should be asking that. I was thrilled that a person asked that question. Now, here's the principle. It's one thing to walk in obedience to the law. It's a complete different thing to rely on our obedience to the law to gain favor with God. And it's this relying on the law to gain favor with God that Paul is denouncing. As believers in Christ, we are not lawless. We'll get to that as we continue in the letter, but that's a good principle for us. Remember, justification is what is in view right now not sanctification. We've been over this quite a few times, and we have to keep those things sorted out or we fall into a dreadful mess here, don't we? That's verse 10. Now we still, well, we've got a ways to go. We better pick up the pace here a little bit because we definitely want to look at verse 11. Notice there, Paul says, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. Of course it's evident. Has anybody kept the law perfectly in thought, word, and deed, save Jesus Christ? Not a one of us, right? So it's evident It's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Now, this quote comes from Habakkuk, which we read. Now, we didn't read this passage. This passage comes from chapter 2. We read a portion of chapter 1. I wanted to go back there, but for sake of time, 
Let's just think, because I've already started to explain Habakkuk. Habakkuk's an interesting prophecy. It's different than all the other prophets in the respect that Habakkuk doesn't receive a word from the Lord and then go and proclaim that word. Habakkuk's in prayer to the Lord. And what is Habakkuk praying for? He's looking around at all the wickedness that's going on in Judah. And the wicked are oppressing the righteous. And they're prospering. It's like Psalm 73 that we studied, you know, a few months ago. And he said, he's, 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 wait a second, how can this be? And, and you know, he, he, he says to God, he says, how can you sit idly by while this is happening? Where is the law? What is, what is Habakkuk expecting? He's expecting the, the judgment, if you will. He's expecting the curse. How is it these people are getting away with this stuff? You know, I've been thinking about uh, preaching through Habakkuk next after we're done with Galatians. I haven't begun to pray about that yet, but I've just been thinking because of the time we live in right now, that might be a good book for us to take a look at. So what is, what is Habakkuk doing? This entire prophecy is, a, is an interplay between Habakkuk in prayer with the Lord and the Lord answering Habakkuk's prayer. So he lifts up this complaint. He says, Lord, how is it? How is it these people can do these things? How is it that they can get away with this stuff? How is it that they can continue to prosper? Where is the law? Why? It seems like you're idly looking by. Well, what God says to Habakkuk next completely throws him for a loop. Because what does God say next? Well, you know, the Chaldeans, you know, those characters, who are the Chaldeans? The Babylonians? Oh, there's Babylon. I'm going to raise up the Babylonians, and they're going to come in, and they're going to be my rod of judgment. Now, if we've read through the Old, the Old Testament and New Testament a couple times, we know the story. But let's keep in mind that Bacchic doesn't have that advantage. And there he is looking at real time at this. And what does he say? He says, Lord, how is it that you can punish a people by a nation that's more wicked than the people they're punishing? Can you, can you kind of feel the, the perplexity and the tension there? The Babylonians, these people are more wicked than the people I'm complaining about here in Judah. And you're going to use them to punish the people in Judah? He's mystified. He's mystified. And how does God answer? How does God answer that complaint? He says, Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by his faith. Well, what's that mean? Well, in that particular context, the start of it is don't fasten on to what your eyes see. Because not everything is the way it appears. How does it appear? It appears like God is completely idle. It appears like he's not taking a role. It appears like this thing is just running itself. And especially when the Babylonians come in, and we know that a short time after that, um, the Babylonians come in and sack Judah, don't they? And Judah's carried off, where they're in exile for 70 years. Has God failed to bring the covenant people uh, to into his kingdom? Has God failed to take his people and usher them into his kingdom? Has God's promises failed? Has all these things failed? We could come to that conclusion looking at things falsely as it might be. What's God saying? The righteous shall live by his faith. God is just. God is powerful. God is sovereign. God makes promises. 
He will keep his promises. And down the list you go, regardless of what it looks like, regardless of what your eyes see, regardless of what the headlines are reading today. We live not by sight, but we live by faith, right? Now, some people will say what Paul's doing, and we should expect a lot of pushback on verse 11, because this takes us right to the very heart of the gospel, doesn't it? This is a deadly weapon to Satan and his entourage. And you can expect this to always be challenged. Every generation has to, has to fight that the gospel will be, be preserved. And there are some who say, look, you know, the Apostle Paul is twisting this out of, you know, he's completely twisting this out of context when he says this. No, he's not. What is the Apostle Paul doing here? He's taking us deeper in it. And we need to look at verse 12 in order to understand verse 11. In verse 12, we have the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Now, what does Paul mean that the law is not of faith? Again, that's a place we can trip and fall down. There's one translation that helpfully puts it this way. It says, this way of faith is very different from the way of the law. We've already been talking about that. It's radically different to be righteous before God through faith. In other words, to become righteous through God by putting our faith and trust in Christ who has lived a life we couldn't live and given us his, righteous, his righteousness. That's completely different. That's a different thing than trying to follow the law and earn your own. Well, someone will say, well, nobody's doing that today, are they? Well, last week I, I showed that, yeah, most of the people in your neighborhoods and in your families and everywhere around are doing exactly that. Because if you ask them why God should let them into uh, his kingdom, what do they typically say nine times out of ten? I know I've always tried to be a nice guy. I know I'm not perfect, but I've always tried to do this, 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 and this. Well, guess what? They're counting on their own righteousness. This is law-keeping. This is the very thing that the Apostle Paul is denouncing. They're under a curse, as I said last week. That's the problem, you see. That's the problem. Now, notice the contrast. We had a contrast between verses 9 and 10. You'll notice there's a contrast between verses 11 and 12. The righteous shall live by his faith. The one who does them shall live by them. Notice the word live. The righteous shall live by his faith. We do not become alive until we put our faith and trust in Christ. That's where life begins. Someone say, wait a second, I've been alive. No, that's where life begins. Paul tells the Ephesians that they were dead in sin and trespasses when they were following the course of this world, following after the prince of the power of the air, right? Walking in unrighteousness. But then when the gift of faith come and they begin, their eyes are open, their ears are open, and they begin to embrace Christ, guess what happened? They become spiritually alive. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because you once were dead and now you're alive, aren't you? You know, you don't need me to go on and on and on about it. But if our eyes haven't yet been opened, it's like explaining orange to a person who's colorblind. Well, you know, it's a little bit darker than uh, yellow. It's uh, not as bright as red. <laughs> Real helpful, right? How <laughs> many think, okay, well, what's yellow? <laughs> Well, that's another story, isn't it? I mean, the eyes, is this, it's this business. You can see it when you talk to people. 
like water off the back of a duck. What has to happen? God has to open up those eyes. But the moment he opens up those eyes, what happens? You become alive. You're actually, for the first time, in touch with reality. You've always been. We, 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 we watch the news and everything. We see some of the conclusions people come to, some of the ridiculous stuff we see in the news. We say, those people are completely out of touch with reality. So are all unbelievers. The fool says in his heart, there's no God. There's nobody watching. The fool says in his heart that if nobody can see me, then no one's going to know what I just did. That's out of touch with reality. What's in touch with reality is God sees everything that we do. What's in touch with reality is one of these days we're going to have to get account, give an account to God for everything we've done. That's being in touch with reality. What's, what's really in touch with reality is the beauty, the splendor, and the majesty, and the grace of Jesus. He's the most beautiful of beauties, is he not? When we begin to see that, even just a glimpse of that, we're actually now starting to come into touch with reality. Otherwise, we're out of touch with reality. Paul's taking us deeper. Look, look at the depths of this. The righteous shall live by faith. The moment that we're brought into union with Christ, there we begin to experience what real blessings and treasures are. Prior to that, what are we chasing around after? Almost like animals. We're chasing around after stuff that's nothing in comparison to the treasures of Christ. Think about Ephesians 1. You know, how Paul develops that in the first chapter where he finally says, in Christ we have all of the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. There isn't one that's withheld from us. Now that's true wealth. That's true wealth. I can, I'll tell on myself here. I'll go first. You know, I believe that it was in my best interest to become a millionaire by the age of 40. That's what I was trying to do. I was well on my way, by the way. You know, that's why I say over and over and over and over again, success is dangerous. You hear me say that all the time. And a lot of people push back on that. Be careful if you're pushing back on that. I can tell you success is dangerous. most dangerous thing that could have happened to me through those times where I've been successful. I was well on my way. I wanted to be a millionaire by the age of 40. By the age of 29, I was well on my way. The trajectory was set. The people I was looking up to had all done it. I was going to do it. I saw how they did it. I was going to do it myself. Like an animal chasing after what? But then the Lord, the Lord showed mercy on me and showed me real treasures. I'll tell you what, watching these kids sit in this congregation is a greater feeling than any deal I have ever done in business. Isn't it? I don't want to put her on the spot, but seeing her sit right here in this front row like this, what a tremendous, we got one in the front, we got one clear back in the back. How precious. Now some of your eyes are wet. Because it's right, isn't it? What do you compare to that? What do you compare to the knowledge of the family member who's been lost for decades now has come to faith in Christ? Does that even compare to some deal you wrote on a napkin somewhere? Some big sale that you got? Those are joyous, but does it compare? 
Oh, there's no life for the one. There's no life for the law keeper. Knock on the door, ask them how they're going to get into Kevin. And the law keeper says, I've always tried to be a nice guy. There's no chance. They don't have a chance. Because we're not nice guys. We're nice guys if we compare ourselves to someone who's a little worse than us, which is what we do. I know I'm not perfect, but I'm not like this guy over here, you know, or I'm not perfect, but I'm not like, I'm not like that guy, you know. That's what we do, isn't it? What happens when we're compared to the straight edge of God's holy perfection? There are no nice guys. There's none. And God is just. And that's scary, isn't it? That's frightening. And that's when we get to verse 13. This is one of the most comforting. This is probably the most comforting verse we've come to in Galatians so far. Look at verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How did he do that? By doing the unthinkable, he became a curse for us. That is staggering. And Paul quotes again from another passage of Scripture, this time again from Deuteronomy. He says, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Now, you go back to Deuteronomy 21, you look at that verse, I think it's verse 23, if my memory serves me right, it's right in that area. And that's a law that pertains to the worst of criminals. And um, the prescription for that is they're to be executed, and then their bodies are to be hung on a tree. Some people will say, we see the New Testament's twisting it because Jesus is hung on a tree, but he's hung alive on a tree. And you, you read that stuff and you think to yourself, come on, you're very intelligent. Jesus is drinking that down to the dregs. How much more merciful would it have been for Jesus to have been put to death more quickly and then his body hung than to have to die on that tree. And when we think about how much God hates sin, his eyes are too pure to look at sin or to look at wrongdoing. The thoughts of the Holy One of Israel. See, this is the Apostle Paul. This was his big hang-up. It would have been one of his big hang-ups with Christ and Christianity and everything. It was inconceivable to the Apostle Paul that the Holy One of Israel could become a curse. See, we, we're, we're not in touch with that. We, we really can't be in touch with that because we haven't grown up the way the Apostle Paul grown up. We've grown up hearing about the cross. We've seen the cross. We've heard about Jesus. And we're kind of numb to the whole thing where we have to do a lot of work to really begin to see what's happening. The Holy One of Israel, very God of very God in the flesh, voluntarily for the joy set before him, becomes a curse so that he can buy, purchase the likes of us from his very own justice. This is meant to be a comforting verse. It's, it's meant to be a conquering verse. It's meant to be a conquering truth. This is the conquering truth. This is the truth that melts our hard hearts. If this doesn't melt our hearts, there's nothing that can Think about how many hymns have been written on this subject. Was it for crimes that I have done? He groaned upon the tree. Was it for crimes that we have done? 
that he groaned upon the tree. That the sinless Messiah would take our sin and become a curse in our place. What was the purpose, verse 14? So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Who are the Gentiles? That's us. That's you and me. This is a good place to stop because I don't think we can get any higher, can we? Heavenly Father, we thank you, praise you, Father, for these wonderful truths. And Father, forgive us as our hard hearts that push back against these things. Sometimes our hearts are unmoved by these, but we pray, Father, you would move our hearts by these truths. Move our hearts per- permanently by these truths, Father. We will sing these melodies for eternity in the presence of Christ Jesus, that for the love that you put upon us, Lord, as we were rebelling against you, you redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. Oh, Lord, now your name is above all names. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the name of Christ Jesus. We thank you for Jesus and the name Jesus, which by his very name means Jehovah saves. We thank you for these things, Father. Lord, we pray that, Father, you would cause these things to reverberate in our hearts always. In Jesus' name, amen.